0: Welcome to the Kevin and Fred show. I am your host, Kevin Kaufman. And along with my business partner, Fred Weaver, we bring to you our podcast where we highlight some of the best and brightest in the real estate industry, along with a weekly segment called industry headlines. We are a proud member of the industry syndicate family of real estate podcast. And we are so glad that you are listening and tuning in today. And we hope you enjoy our show. All right, guys, we're back with Kevin and Fred show, and today I am joined by Mitch Rosen, head of real estate at Yield Street. Mitch, how's it going, man? Hey, Kevin, how are you doing? I'm Thanks. doing really, doing really good. Thanks for taking the time to be on our show today. Um, thought it'd be good to kind of number one, I want to talk about Yield Street and what you guys are doing, but also um, would love to learn more about you and your background, and uh, you know, just kind of share that with our listeners.
1: Fantastic. Uh, Again, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you uh, taking the time. So happy to answer any questions you have and hopefully educate your user base about who we are, what we do, and um, how we can, you know, work with them. Awesome. Well... There's a couple of different things I want I want to dive into, uh,
0: you know, things like uh, number one, raising money uh, and capital and going out and doing the kind of deals that you guys are doing with Yield Street and of course what you're doing. But I'd also like to talk about some other topics. Hopefully, we'll have time to talk about 2020. You and I just offline we're talking about a uh, you know a COVID magic show, if you will, and just kind of some of the things the way our lives have really been changed around right in the last year. So hopefully we can dive into that. Absolutely. But, Before we do, why don't you give us the who's Mitch Rosen? Like, give us the the thirty second elevator speech. Like, we meet on a elevator, and I say, "Hey, uh, I'm Kevin," and you say, "I'm Mitch," and I ask you what you do and kind of how how long you've been doing it. How do how do you typically respond to that?
1: Sure. So, with that, Deal Street, or with regards to me personally, sorry, just you you personally, yeah. Yeah, personally, Yeah, okay. So um, so I've been in the real estate investment game for 20 years, basically since I graduated college, um, primarily on the um, buy side, if you will. So I've worked for two large multi, uh, multinational investment firms, um, both really kind of targeting the higher yielding, higher risk profile spectrum of commercial real estate, primarily on a lending side. So not really owning assets, but lending against assets. And that's been the form of first mortgage loans, um, subordinated junior mortgages, as well as mezzanine investments. Um, on institutional quality real estate, you know, um, major cities, urban markets, office, industrial, multifamily, uh, retail and hotel, some land plays as well. Um, and oftentimes those were um, done in a period of time, you know, called pre-co- pre, uh, pre-2008, pre right? Okay. When the markets were, were quite robust, um, a lot of underwriting was done on a pro forma or what it could be versus what it was, Right. And so that really led to a lot of what you saw in terms of, you know, decreasing in value, people giving the keys back to their assets, um, foreclosures, bank failure, et cetera. Um, And the key there was, you know, uh, having the right borrower and having the right real estate uh, in a tough time. Um, A lot of folks, if you were lending, you had some form of dislocation in your portfolio. And and we were not unique. We were not, you know, unique in that sense. Um, And then uh, a huge opportunity presented itself after. 08 in the form of really distressed investing and working through a portfolio, and so I you know started investing in primarily um, commercial mortgage backed security bonds. Uh, these these are bonds backed by a pool of commercial real estate loans, and so you're basically buying a, a piece of each loan effectively, and that trades like a not quite like a stock, but but in a similar fashion. Um, and so it was more of a distressed opportunistic role at a point in time, uh, if you will.
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm sure, I know, so what you mentioned um, kind of like going through 2008 and some of the unique opportunities that brought, I know I, I actually got my license in 2000, middle of 2007 at a time where I literally had friends tell me not to, um, because, yeah. you know, it was, I had, I'd quote missed it as they said, um, but I saw it as a big opportunity to learn and and to go the complete opposite direction of everyone else, which is, you know, usually suited me pretty well. Um tell me, I, I gotta imagine in your role and what you've done in your career, some of those lessons that you learned at that time and the deals that you're a part of and and hopefully even some of the deals you weren't a part of probably provided some really valuable insight and lessons for you as you, you know, have have, have taken your career to different levels.
1: Yeah, I, I would say that's definitely the case. I'd say one overarching theme that I I would point to across my investment career is that it's really a, a big part about who your partner is or who your borrower is, right? What kind of um, you know, how do they conduct themselves? How do they work with you as a lender? Do they um, work with you? Do they work against you? Do they try to stimulate your rights? Do they try to kind of find a common ground to resolve um, you know, issues or disagreements? Um, and that permeates a good market and a bad market, right? And so I would say that um, that goes a long way to working through problems as they arise within a portfolio or a loan. Um, and there are some of those who take a, a much harder tact and almost call your bluff and, and uh, you know, challenge you, if you will. And there are others who say, listen, you know, here's here's something I can do. I can put some more money in or I can, you know, I could facilitate a resolution this way. You know, we're not looking to own assets as a starting point, right? I don't want to take an asset back. I'd like to work with our borrowers um, when they're willing to do the right thing. And so that's one thing I think that definitely sticks out from 08 is that you had a lot of folks who had invested with very grandiose uh, assumptions in terms of rents and, and low vacancy and low cap rates and just you know the ability to make a ton of money and when that didn't come to fruition um, and their and their equity was essentially you know wiped out on paper maybe not wiped out yet in, in reality you know people took a lot of different made them declared bankruptcy right to stop your rights and foreclosing yeah. um, you know trying to you know uh, siphon away their interest to a third party that wasn't approved a lot of stuff went down that was just you know, not um, not in the spirit of the documents. And so I would say picking the right borrower who has a track record, who has a history, who has references of doing the right thing, that's really important. That's one major lesson I would highlight. Awesome. Well, so one and one of the
0: reasons, and I'm going to kind of transition now into kind of a little more what's going on today and then and then hopefully go backwards again to uh, to COVID. But sure. so one of the things that really stuck out to me uh, and why I wanted to make sure we have you on is so... You're head of re- real estate at Yield Street, which is alternative investment platform for for the retail investor. And one of the things that I one of the conversations and themes that comes up constantly with, with real estate agents and brokers around the country is, I want to invest in real estate. I want to be able to do X, Y, Z. And for some of us, it only looks like maybe it, it's a it's a small rental portfolio you know, of single family homes, right? Maybe it's, and we see the opportunities that, you know, some of the bigger um, bigger companies, asset managers and whatnot have with, within the REITs, et cetera. And uh, it seems so unattainable to be able to do things like that. So it was really interesting kind of having that conversation with you, um, you know, in the spirit of thinking with someone who's in and around real estate and how they can go out and number one, take advantage of opportunities themselves. But number two, as real estate, professionals, I believe part of our job is to always be making sure that we're putting opportunities in front of our clients and our friends and our, our client base, regardless if it's something we're getting paid for or not. So that was kind of the spirit of what I was hoping to, to be able to chat about today. So number number one, can you give me the, give me the lowdown on yield street? Give me what's the uh, kind of, what's the goal of that? Who's the ideal um, client or customer for you guys? And we'll just take it from there.
1: Sure. And there's a lot of, there's a lot in that statement. So let me, we can touch on all those points because um, I think it's really worth to highlight. So Guild is an online digital wealth platform. Um, really the, the goal in the creation of the platform was to really offer the retail investor access to um, investment opportunities that they otherwise would historically not have access to. And you think about, you mentioned, for example, um, in people wanting to invest in CRE in, in real estate in some capacity, right? Oftentimes it's through a person you know um, or it's a friend of a friend, or someone is raising capital to do X, Y, Z, and you, you know, put in some, some dollars, and you know, it's quite passive, and you maybe get paid back, you get some coupon along the way, and then hopefully you get a recovery upon a sale or a refinance at some point. Historically, you think about how people invest in alternatives, particularly, right? You think about the large family offices, pension funds, endowments, you know, the large multi-billion dollar managers. I'd say over 20% typically is invested in alternatives. When you think about the traditional retail investor, right? They are, they really know a few products. Well, they know mutual funds, they know stocks, they know bonds. Um, and maybe they've invested in some, you know, one or two kind of off market transaction, like a real estate deal or a friend starting a business or a restaurant, whatever it may be, they put some money there, but there's really no programmatic way for them to access those alternative asset classes. Um, and really, what the goal of Yield Street is, is to provide those investors um, access to those products that they historically have not been able to access in a really efficient, uh, informative uh, way. And, and we think we've done that in a re- in really good format. And so that's really been a lot of the success of Yield Street is offer those investors a digestible form of these other alternative assets that they can understand, read through, and and cur- curate their own portfolio essentially.
0: That's awesome. I think that's something that, uh, first of all, I I want to just point out from a standpoint of when you think of all of the good that technology can do in um, kind of democratizing everything like that, to me, that's a great example of it. Because to your point, most of the people I know that are heavily invested in in any sort of like, whether it's a REIT or big, I'll just call it big commercial project. It was, they knew someone who knew someone or, you know, they, they had an insight somewhere that quite frankly, nobody else did, you know, or yep. very, you know, five people knew about it. And, and yep. so those five people, and I think that's one of the tough things that prevents people from being able to truly grow wealth versus, um, you know, like, because the, they, because they we feel like our options are limited, right. and And truthfully, technology, when it's, when it's in its best form does things like this that allows us to to make things that were limited and unlimited effectively.
1: And I'd say that's right. I'd also add that, you know, some legislation that passed in 2012, in particular, the Jobs Act, really um, provided the tailwind for crowd platforms to um, grow and, and carve a nice niche out. And it's really been a, an eight or nine year um, start, but we're really in the second inning of this process, right? I think there's a whole host of ways that we think this is going to continue to evolve over time to get broader access, to get more information out there, to access more folks who want to put capital to work in different formats. The other thing I'd highlight about Yield Street is that we're not just CRE, right? We have a multi-asset class platform, which makes us very unique versus other competitors of ours, right? So we do art finance, for example, which is kind of quite unique. We do private business credit, which is could be receivables or inventory financing, right? We do litigation finance, which is really what got Yield Street started in 2015. So it's very unique. Um, asset types that you otherwise would not really see uh, anywhere else. So that is also part of the um, the allure of what yield you can provide to an investor if, who wants to create and curate their own unique portfolio.
0: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I um, the, the ability to be able to go and finance like litigation and things like that's pretty yeah that's amazing. Yeah. Um That, that is really cool. But since we'll, let's focus in, uh, we'll focus in a little more on the, on the real estate stuff just for, for the sake of that. But obviously I would imagine anybody who wanted to learn more about some of the other asset, uh, asset
1: types, they could do so, you know, by contacting the firm or or researching online. Yeah, Our website, y i e l d s t r e e t Y-I-E-L-D-S-T-R-E-E-T.com. You can find all the offerings there. You can sign up for information. You can get accredited. You can, invest to our our Prism fund, which is a 40 act fund. Anyone can invest in that fund with a thousand dollar minimum. So it's a very accessible, you know, platform.
0: Very cool. Yeah. So
1: let's talk about some of so you're you're head
0: of a real estate for Yield Street. Can let's talk about what are some of the things that maybe number one, if if it if it's applicable, is there an ideal client for you or is there an ideal investor uh, for what you do on on the real estate side and then Give me some of the thought process that that you have, at, you know, as as you're as you're approaching the the real estate fund.
1: Sure. So great question. So one thing I would highlight prior to 2020, Yield Street on the CRE side was 100% focused on the debt side of the business, primarily bridge products, shorter term duration, um, first mortgage loans, called you know between one and three years, maybe in four years in some cases, coupons north of eight percent. Um, and what made us unique is that we would often partner with other originators who had really established relationships with brokers and borrowers, and also maybe had local expertise and a servicing infrastructure. And so we would we would essentially utilize our capital to leverage their platforms and grow with them. And so what we've targeted is, is often cash flowing assets, right, in the form of loans, um, whether it be current cash from the asset itself or interest reserves upfront, while that prop- property or that asset is transitioning to some other either a value-add product for multifamily, or it's a conversion of a hotel to something else. If it's land, maybe it's being, um, you know, developed into a, a, a multifamily project from ground up. We need a bridge loan before we secure the construction loan. Give you a whole host of those different formats. But the key with us is principal protection, first and foremost, right? We want to make a loan for an investment. We want to see our, earn our coupon, and we want to get repaid in a timely manner. That's really the foremost... Um, priority when I walk in here every day, thinking about how to protect our investors and how to grow the real estate business, right? We never sacrifice one for the other. Um, what I would also say is that 2021 will be our first foray into the equity space. We're very excited about that. So we will now offer you know LP interest in owned real estate. And that really is part of the natural progression of the platform. We, we started with first mortgage loans. We migrated to kind of subordinate first mortgage debt and then to PREF. As well as Mez, and so this is kind of the next evolution of providing our investors with the full gamut of risk, whether it be first mortgage on one side to equity on the other, with different return profiles and different return um, mandates and, and risk profiles, and that the whole the whole goal is and to offer our investors the whole gamut and let them pick and curate the way they want to invest.
0: That's awesome. So, so let me ask you that. That's that's interesting. Is it you said you know it's kind of the evolution. It, was 2020 like a springboard for that evolution to get into to get into the equity side of, of the real estate business or is that just more of
1: like hey, that's just where we're at at sort of this time in history? It's a great question. I think part of 2020 I think will all present opportunities certainly on the equity side. I do think that there's going to be some time for those to come to fruition and and there is some school of thought that it may it may not, may never come in the way in which a lot of investors are projecting meaning this huge this huge wave of distress. You know, I'm I'm of the mindset that I'm not really sure that comes to fruition because you have Fed monetary policy measures, you have federal stimulus, um, you have banks being prevented from exercising remedies and having be forced to work with borrowers, and um, if you think like I do that this economy may be able to really recover quite quickly once we get past, let's say the Labor Day, right, and and more vaccines are uh, administered, people kind of. Uh, go back to res- having a living life resembling somewhat what it was like in yeah. February of 2020, I'm of the belief that we could see a fairly um, robust recovery. And so I think that benefits almost every property class in CRE, maybe other than retail. I think retail is in a legitimate systemic downward trend that really will not benefit from, not will benefit the same way, I should say, that the other asset classes. I think hotels, for example, could boom, like resort hotels, destination places. I think people are cooped up for at this point, over 12 months, I know if I'm vaccinated, my wife's vaccinated, my kids are safe, and we, we're told we can travel, like, I, I would expect that we would take a nice trip together just to kind of, you know, reinvigorate those uh, those good feelings.
0: Yeah, I got I to gotta imagine from a travel perspective, things are, are probably going to take off in a big, big way over whatever, like you said, maybe it's Labor Day, may, maybe it's at some other point in time when the vaccination, whatever, uh, you know, is that a, yeah. I'll call it a saturation point.
1: Exactly. Um,
0: it, well, let's, let, so let me ask you. And so you, you pointed something out about retail, like that was, the writing was on the wall for that prior, prior to February of 2020, right. With, I mean, the easy one to talk about is Amazon. They're obviously not the only online real t- retailer. They're just, you know, they're Godzilla. Yeah, yeah. So, but like th- that writing was on the wall. Let me ask you a question with all that you see it and I'm and, um, you know, the space way better than I do is there do you see is it going to be we see more repurposing of that retail space does it just eventually go away and maybe replace with with other uses uh, i'm just, i'm really curious to see if you have any if if you have any thoughts on that
1: sure and this is being a, a big topic for us as well as i think other you know folks in the CRE space uh, what i would say i've been talking about for example malls since 2007 right yeah. I've been thinking about you know the way I shop, my wife shops, our our contemporary shop, my parents shop. Um, it's a lot of friction going into a store, waiting online, trying to find what you want and not being in stock, going to a dresser. It's just not a really pleasurable experience for the most part. And so I think it's to differentiate what kind of retail we're talking about. So services providers, so haircutters, nail salons, grocery stores, dry cleaners, uh, shoe shine spots. Um, You know things of that nature. Restaurants, clearly, right? Things like that. I don't. I think have a legitimate purpose of being and aren't going anywhere. Um, The local pharmacy, um, you know, the local uh, yogurt shop in town, and and the gym. um, I don't think those are really going to go away. I think people like. I think we're social animals. I think we like to be around other people. I think. I think being you know on a computer in your house just ordering products is not going to be the way of the future. Yeah, but I do think there'll be more penetration with groceries, for example. Like that, that rate was two percent five years ago. It's probably five percent now, and it, COVID probably accelerated that by ten years. On the on the mall side, you know, America has been over-retailed for forever, right? Yeah. The number of square foot of sellable retail space versus say Europe, or 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 Asia, is, is 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 multiples of them. So we've had too much growth on the on the square footage of of retail sellable space. And a lot of that has been on the apparel side, I and mean, there's only so many apparel providers you need out there, yeah. and so I think you're just seeing the the weak properties, the weak assets really, um, you know, have just an acceleration of what people expected five six years ago. You know, maybe people thought I, I personally I was always always at the assumption that whenever the next recession hits, when that does hit, you're going to see a wave of defaults and and bankruptcies of tenants who just are not able to make it. And and what COVID did is that was the catalyst. In this case, it wasn't a recession; it was it was a pandemic. But nonetheless, the outcome was the same. So I think people who are sure. surprised at the retail apocalypse, whatever term you want to use, I think is a bit uh, misguided. I think that it was that that scenario was always set up. The question was mostly the the the, the last, you know, straw on the camel's back that broke it. Um, now this was certainly unique and 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 quite devastating. Than a, a recession, you can still open your store, right? You can still have sales. Um, this was just an amplification of what that could be. But I don't think most people in CRE are surprised that these malls were very susceptible to, for example, you know, anchors like J.C. Penney's of the world and Kohl's and and those guys who've been on a tough time for years. You know, the last 10 years of declining sales. Who goes to a department store anymore? I mean, I certainly don't.
0: Yeah. You know, it's a while. Just, just a personal experience. My wife and I just recently uh, were shopping for some certain furniture and the store that we went to, they've got a website is what they obviously sell online and the, they had the product that we wanted in store. So we wanted to go there and look at it and just kind of touch it, feel it, make sure. And quite lit- literally it was, 50% cheaper from the same, like the exact same company to buy it online than it was to go there and purchase it in store.
1: So that's, yeah, that's shocking to me, actually. That's, was, a, that's a probably pretty poor, um, you know, distribution model, if you will, if you go to a website versus a store. Yeah. Especially
0: with like, it's not even like uh, it wasn't even a, under a different brand or an alternative brand. I mean, it was literally the same name. On the website and you know uh, that which had the store location on the bottom of it as an as an example the Crazy. only thing i think of is obviously okay they'd love to go to more of that online model versus having these big um showrooms i guess is, is probably the right yeah. the right word there
1: yeah i, I think um we think about what it costs to rent industrial space or warehouse space right call it five bucks a foot seven dollars a foot eight dollars for ten maybe to what you're paying for a, a space at a mall or a, a showroom, you're probably paying, I would guess, two to three to four times that. Yeah. So, um, you know, a lot of the hybrid model now, in uh, hybrid models used in many different ways, you know, it's the it's the, uh, omni-channel, right? So you think about guys like Orby Parker, for example, who started only online, yeah. and opened up like flagship locations in major cities, right? And so, um, Tesla, similar type of concept, Apple, similar type of concept, so, um, I think that, I don't know about the economics of those businesses, but I do know that they're very successful in that model. And, um, you know, even thinking about like the various mattress companies like Casper and, right. So you can find those now at like uh, Crane Barrel or uh, Pottery Barn. And they've different, I think one guy partnered with Target, one guy partnered with Pottery Barn. So you can go and buy those mattresses in a store and see them. Right. So um, I think people's adoption of ordering online has really changed. Like for example, five years ago, I really didn't off order many clothes online. I just wanted to see it like, you know, and I think yeah. behaviors change. And, and now I order virtually everything online with the ease of having to, you know, mail it back doesn't fit or it's not the way I thought it was going to look or feel. I think that's just going to be part of the business. The problem is most companies can't make money if they ever return their stuff back. Cost of shipping and stuff. So that's why I think the Omnichannel may be a, a middle ground or a solution, but it's still evolving. It will continue to evolve. But I think retail in in the in the CRE space is unique in that a lot of that mall space is going to have to be repurposed. To your question, I'm not sure what it's going to go to, but it's going to have to change in some capacity.
0: Yeah, no, no doubt about it. Maybe <laughs> it feels like too. You know, you brought up um, like hotel space and and just kind of everyone feeling th- this cooped up feel that that most of you know most of us have and how. I very realistically travel. Travel could take off, and I could almost see it. You know, some of that stuff maybe being repurposed for at least a period of time into, I'll call it experiential type of space. Who who knows? I I think there's, yeah. I, think there's a, I think there's a lot of opportunity with travel. And and if I remember correctly, or at least it seemed like it. You know, that obviously the hotel space seems to be something that that you're focused on with Yield Street. Um, is that a? How long does that last? I guess. I mean, obviously, I think hotels are. I don't think hotels are going anywhere, but like, let's say a run back up, if you will, or or kind of a, a hot time in that space. Is that something that can sustain for five years, a decade? Is that shorter, like a year or two? Like what's that post-pandemic, you know,
1: Lift. opportunity yeah, a, look like? You know, I'm not smart enough to have the answer for that, to be honest. I think it'd be just me speculating, which I'm happy to do. But you think about, you know, the growth post-08. Um, Right? Even in the face of continued new supply in various markets of new rooms, new hotels being built, um, for the most part, there was a continued growth of average daily rate, ADR, and REVPAR, revenue per available room. So the metrics continued to improve. And that's partly why you kept on seeing more and more rooms built, right? more competition. Um, you differentiate between markets now a bit. right? So you think about like a New York market, New York City in particular, it's a heavily tourist, international-driven uh, hotel market. Right, And so um, you need to see international travel come back for those hotels to kind of really start recovering. Whereas if you think about like domestic destination hotels or resorts, I think those have a far quicker return profile in terms of coming back to where they were pre-COVID. So I think it's a differentiate between those two types. I'd also add business travel, Um you know, pick any Midwest city that has four or five hotels by an airport, and then maybe five or six hotels within a major metropolitan area, Cleveland, Cincinnati, you know, Topeka, pick your market. Um, You know, I'm not so sure how quickly business travel will rebound as well as personal travel. I think of the two differently. Um, I think people would love to get back in front of clients and and meet with partners and, and, but I think that'll be maybe a bit more, if you're taking two or three trips a year, and you're utilizing one of those for personal, you don't have as many, you know, left to just travel uh, for business as much. So I think people are gonna still be wait to see how post-COVID this plays out. Um, I have some friends now. I actually had a call today with someone who's been traveling since the fall, and he said it's not without complications, right? Where do you eat? Uh, what hotels do you stay at? You know, how the airports feel. And so, you know, if he was traveling two to three weeks a month or two weeks a month prior, he maybe is doing now three or four days a month. Yeah. So you know, it's take time to ramp that back up.
0: Yeah. I got to imagine, I want to say it was, um, I don't remember if I think it was Gary Kelly, the CEO of Southwest, uh, airlines where he had, he anticipated it being a good 10, 10 plus years before business travel returned to 2019 levels. Now, who knows if, who knows if it like, whether that's, you know, accurate or or short or long on it. Um, but obviously either, either way that, you know, it's going to take a while, I think on the business side, but I, I got to tend to agree. I think on the, on the personal side, um, the leisure, you know, there's a big opportunity here in from, from not just an investing standpoint, but, you know, develop, development standpoint as well. And all the other things that are kind of around that.
1: Yeah. Uh, And I I don't think I answered your question specifically about the timing of that or how long that may last for, but I, I don't see why it can't be years of recovery of like continued, you know, growth and occupancy and, now the question is how do you do you get back to where it was in 19 within two years, within three years? I don't know. Each, each market's depending on each hotel specific specific, but I don't see why you can't have a sustained recovery or growth in in those asset classes from a ADR, especially with a lot of hotels closed down, right? So you have less supply yeah. now. Um, and, and how those are repurposed or reinvested in. So you're gonna have less supply, hopefully more demand, and that should lead to higher rates and and hopefully you know more cash flow for these properties.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let, let me ask you this, Mitch, before, before we start to to wrap up, what, what should we, what should, should we have discussed about yield street or that maybe that we haven't yet, or what's the question that anyone who's, who's listening and kind of heard the first part where you talked about what you guys do overall as a company and, and they want to learn more, like what, maybe what are the questions that person should be asking you?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. So, so one thing that to think about is, you know, how, how, um, what what should investors be thinking about as they want to invest capital, right? And I, and I think the stock market's not going away. I think it's had a great couple years here, right? Um, even despite the March 2020 drop. I mean, it's recovered phenomenally. But you know, that's only one. That should be one bucket within your portfolio, right? You don't have any all your eggs in one basket, though, so to say. And so we think that we're providing our investors with an access to another bucket of capital or opportunities that they not tapped before. And 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 to think about the again the most sophisticated investors in the world, um, pension funds, endowments, family offices, you know, alternatives is a huge component of that for them. And in particular, CRE commercial real estate is even a, as big a component, or maybe one of the biggest components of the alt side. And so, what we think we're providing is our investors the ability to access those investments, um, curate their own portfolio, um, target the duration, the risk profile, and 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 uh, try it out and see how they like it. Um, we've returned over eight hundred million dollars of principal and interest in the last five years, or six years, I should say, across all asset classes. And so, um, you know, that's a lot of coupon payments and principal repayments.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And uh, so, we'll put some more. We'll put some some links here in the show notes. So that's YieldStory.com is where people can go to kind of learn more. Yep. Um, anything else that we should be we thinking about as we as we approach? whether through yield street or something else, you know, here we are, you and I recording this in March of 2021. Yep. Um, what What else should we, we be thinking about uh, for the, kind of the remainder of, of this year and, and maybe going into next year as well?
1: Yeah, I, w- I would say two things. The first thing I want to say about just yield street in general, I think I would say, is, you know, always have a, be, 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 be cognizant of when you are being told a return from an equity perspective or a debt perspective, right? Um, you know, have, have a dose of realism with it, right? Every investment can't be a 25% return profile, and so when you look on the equity side, I mean, every deal papers out to be a phenomenal return. It doesn't always work out that way. So inherently, when you're on the debt side, on, on the on the lending side versus the equity side, you have a just inherent level of protection that equity does not have. And so, when we think about going into equity, we're going to start on the more, you know, the more stable asset classes. You know, lower leverage on those assets, um, a more predictable cash flow stream. Than you know doing let's say ground of development in a third tier market, so that's one thing I would highlight right. Um, in terms of the market for 2021 and what's left of this year, which is a lot, um, I think so much can happen from now until then. So I don't want to I don't want to overly uh, speculate. I will say that again. I don't think that the wave of distress that's been a commentary by the pundits for so long is going to come to fruition. I personally don't. I think that um, I well, I'd love to see some opportunities shake themselves up, and there will be some. I don't think it's going to be a deluge of opportunities that people have been thinking about and raising capital for, particularly on the institutional side. I think the Fed, the government, and banks are really incentivized to work with borrowers to bridge them enough to a point where, like we discussed, this economy can kind of turn that switch and really kind of hopefully get back into growth mode. And so that could really bail out not just the banks because those loans are performing again and generating cash flow, but it will also help the borrowers. And I think we're all incentivized to see that come to fruition than having this huge wave of defaults and foreclosures and and asset destruction. So asset value destruction, I should say. So that's one theme that I think people want to talk a lot about, but it just has not been presented in any real manner. I think we all thought going into the year end that banks would be forced to clean up the balance sheet. And that just never happened in any large scale. in one-off situations, obviously. So that's one thing I would highlight. And the second thing I would highlight is just, you know, this rising rate commentary. Um, cause it seems to have some legs now, you know, we, we broke 150 on the 10 year, there's some view it's going to go higher. Um, you know, that has implications for a whole host of things. Inflation being one, buying power of, do- of the dollar, um, you know, uh, investments, if you're a fixed income investment and rates are rising, that inherently decreases the value of your fixed income stream, right? So, um, in to- usually rising rates and, and higher inflation denote economic growth. Right, so there's there's a there's a there's a support there of, um, you know, the economy is doing better and we can support these higher rates. There's some belief right now that the economy is still fairly fragile until we get out of this, that the rising rates could be a detriment, right, and to cause more concern. So, um, we've had a low rates for so long. You create asset bubbles, right? Look at home prices. You know, you're yeah. you, you know this all too well. Yeah. Uh, you can borrow at two point five percent, two point seven percent. It's basically free mortgage debt. I mean, it's it's de minimis. So you know, people are going to lever up and buy homes that they can stretch for um, because they can lock in the year mortgage at under 3%. It's quite, it's a powerful tool.
0: It is, it's super super powerful. So if you, you know, uh, I won't hold, I'm not going to call you up on December 31st uh, and and say, hey, you were wrong or you were right. But do you see, where do you, do you see rates continuing to to raise this year? Do you think they stay where they're at? Do you think they kind of go back down? What if you had to crystal ball this one?
1: Yeah. Um, it's funny, you know, when I, when I, as a real estate investor, right. You know, I always say I can underwrite rents. I can underwrite market occupancy. I can underwrite sales comps. You really can't underwrite rate risk. So inherently you want to hedge out rate risk. You're not really exposed to rates. That's why we do floating rate loans. Typically LIBOR moves my loan rate inherently goes up. Um, I would say that I I do think there's a, there's a, a limit as to how much they can move. We have, we've taken on so much federal debt the last, you know, since 08, frankly, that, um, to see a really meaningful move in rates would really cause a, a problem for the government, and particularly state governments as well, right? How yeah. much? So I don't. I, I think there is some room to move, but I'm not of the belief that we're going to be at say five percent a year. I just don't think that's happening for the ten year. I think it'll stay within a band of you know one fifty to two twenty five, and and you know other than any exogenous shock to the system, I think the goal is to keep it within that bracket.
0: Yeah. I, I I tend to agree. Awesome. Yep. Well, Mitch, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day today to uh, to share that with us. Um, where else can people follow you, you know, catch up with you if they want to kind of, I don't know if you put out any sort of like regular commentary uh, you know, what, what would be the place for someone to kind of learn more about you?
1: So, so our website really has a ton of information. We do have a, a podcast ourselves. We do webinars about once a month. We've done about, I've done about 10 of them with other investors or partners of ours. Um, feel free to go there as well. We have a, a podcast series that people can look at with all the asset class sets, you know, different, doing different podcasts, art, private business credit Marine as well, our technology team. So there's a lot of content out there on the yield street side. That people can go and learn more about, and obviously connect, contact IR. If you have any questions about any offering, I'm happy to get on a call with anyone walk them through our thought process, our logic, our underwriting and get them comfortable.
0: Awesome. Mitch, I appreciate that. Yieldstreet.com guys. We'll put that here in the show notes uh, and Reach out to them if uh, if there's anything there that that interests you. I'm sure that there is. And Mitch, thanks for taking the time today, man.
1: Kevin, thanks so much. Best of luck to you in 21. And I look forward to talking to you December 31st and seeing where rates are.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll hold you to it, buddy. All right, yeah. have a good one. We'll talk. We will, to You will.
1: great week. All right,
0: bye bye. Bye bye.
1: Today's episode is brought to you by Kevin and Fred's Community at EXP Realty. Learn why over 1,000 real estate agents joined EXP Realty last week. Join us for an informational webinar this Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time. Register at intro to